0: The box. Out of
1: the box. Out of the box. Out of the box.
2: Meet people through their music. With Ash Bertabez on FBI.
3: Hello, happy Thursday, and you are listening indeed to Out of the Box. My name's Ash Bertabez, and thank you to Stephen Ferris for giving you three hours of what I'm sure was pretty sweet music, but I can't be totally sure there because we're doing a pre-record today for Out of the Box. It is during the semi-permanent festival and we have managed to nab a speaker from the design conference. He goes by the name of Billy Sorrentino and he is with Wired Magazine. And he wanted to work in music, but he ended up working in graphic design and then worked his way through Condé Nast and as. Um, through the Condé Nast stable of magazines. His CV is pretty weighty and pretty meaty, pretty masculine stuff in there, but eventually he got to where he wanted to be, which is indeed with Tech Magazine, which I've been informed is not the word to use, and it's Wired Magazine. Welcome to the show. Hi,
4: how are you? Thanks so much for having me.
3: I'm good, thanks, and thanks so much for taking some time out of your day to be with us. And, yeah, uh, you've got a lot of great music for us today, and I want to kind of get the vibe of your musical... Your musical loves for you. What kind sure. of stuff have we got here?
4: All right. Well, I'm gonna take you guys uh, kind of through the the history of the music that I've loved. So I, I grew up uh, in like a small beach, surf, skatery type of town, uh, and I grew up listening to punk rock. So punk rock and hardcore, and, uh, and you know, I played in those type of bands with friends growing up. Uh, and then I got to school, and I got into got obsessed with kind of '60s power pop and. Uh, kind of these baroque-ish type of pop bands that were doing still rock and roll stuff like the Kinks and the Zombies. Uh, And then from there, I I just got into kind of 70s rock and country music, and I've I've held fast to that for for years now, and I absolutely love it. All
3: right, and what track do we have first for
4: you? Well, let's start with uh, one of my favorite tracks, uh, Grown Up Skateboarding. Uh, Minor Threat, I Don't Wanna Hear It.
3: On FBI, 94.5. A threat on fBA radio might not have happened in a while, but I'm glad it did. Thank you for bringing that track on Billy Sorrentino of Wired magazine and um I mentioned before that i well it's a tech magazine, but those aren't words you like to see together. Can you explain a little bit why tech magazine is a perhaps useless sure.
4: term yeah you know um tech's not a bad thing, but tech is as sort of technology is, is it's gone mainstream uh you know the guys that uh stereotypically we're part of Wired's canon. You know, these guys that were amazing engineers and inventors and and tech minded folk uh, have kind of become uh, commonplace and popularized, you know, with guys like Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, they've become household names. Uh so, you know, the the other thing is this word magazine, uh we're we're really trying to drop that from what Wired is because at the end of the day, um you know, we're storytellers, and it's about us telling stories across all mediums, and it's about being a brand, right? So Wired is, you know, we are a bunch of journalists and designers and editors that are are kind of trying to realize tomorrow today. I think that's the way we kind of try to put it, have a, an optimistic look at the future and to try to make sure that we put the important things that are coming tomorrow or that are right in front of us in front of you so that you can learn about it and understand it uh, sort of in a way that's going to better your life. I think that's the way we like to look at it.
3: Actually, that's interesting because I I was really excited to see that you had a food issue out. And, you know, being a technologically forward-looking magazine with, you know, a positive outlook on the future, I feel like, you know, there's a pretty apocalyptic bunch of things you hear about our our future in agriculture. But uh, why did you decide to do an entire issue on food?
4: So let me uh, uh, maybe back up a second. I'll talk a little bit bigger about that. Um, Scott Dadich is our editor-in-chief, and he kind of came on onto this role uh, last January so about a year and a half now and one of the main things that we wanted to focus on um, and there was a new editorial team kind of came on and uh, was trying to think about how we could cover things that Wired typically hadn't covered before and food is one of those things food is, is so unbelievably important uh, to culture I, I don't need to say that it's pretty obvious but particularly in America right now you know people are kind of food obsessive and we knew that Wired could look at Um, you know, how we make food, the science behind food, uh, the science behind flavor, and how we could appreciate it on a different level that you're not seeing in other publications. Um, And then the other thing is, like you were saying, about this idea of um, this apocalyptic future and how dire it seems. Um, You know, we like to embrace sometimes those stereotypes, but then also look at, you know, what other type of uh, technological advances are there going to be to actually make food more readily available to everybody or other ways to look at it. I mean, we have a, a story um, coming up in the future about this idea of of the new types of foods that are going to actually better our lives that we don't think about today. So, you know, it's it went from a, a one-off special issue to being something that, I think we're going to cover more and more and more because it's, it's part of culture.
3: And could you tell us a little bit about, you know, what might have been one of your most exciting finds when you were doing that issue?
4: Um, you know, for me, uh, I'm selfish. Um, I like to I like to obviously look at the whole big picture, but I like to look at what my team particularly does with, with high focus. And I think uh, this photographer who's absolutely incredible, Dan Winters, uh, did this beautiful photograph of an imami burger kind of split apart. And to me that that's what I was most excited about. I mean, we photographed food in a way that I don't think people had seen before that was engaging, and fun. Uh it just it had a certain type of energy that it was kind of punk rock. I don't know, it was cool.
3: Speaking of punk rock, we have oh we don't have any punk rock next. We have Beach Boys. So let's oh. take it away from the minor threat <laughs> of, of the last track and take it in a completely different direction.
4: So God only knows.
1: The, me. the world could show nothing to me So what good would in you me? God
2: only knows what I'd be without you If God only knows what I'd be
1: without you God only knows what I'd be without you. <laughs>
3: listening to Out of the Box, my guest today, Billy Sorrentino from Wired Magazine. And why did you bring that Beach Boys track into the studio with us?
4: I'd say because it is the best song of all time. Are you kidding me? Um, <laughs> there is just something absolutely gorgeous about that song. And I, I, I don't know. I, I think it's a testament when, well, first of all, I'm obsessed with the the Beach Boys versus the Beatles uh, songwriting contest, if you will, of the mid-60s. You know, Pet Sounds versus Sergeant Peppers and then Smile and all this kind of craziness. But I think that that was the time where Brian Wilson actually won up to the Beatles. I think it's hard-pressed to find a Beatles song that's better than that. And the kind of crazy thing about Brian was it was one guy who was competing against all four Beatles plus George Martin. So there's something kind of amazing about that track.
3: Imagine if he you know, maybe done a bit of a collaboration with the Beatles.
4: Yeah, I mean, if him and Paul worked together, whoo! The
3: world would have just
4: exploded. Yeah, but, you know, then you would need John to make it cool because mm-hmm. Paul's a little too sappy. <laughs>
3: Good point. And so you, you are, first and foremost, you know, a design guy. When mm-hmm. we're talking about, you know, magazines and now online, on tablet, on phone, mm-hmm. can you tell me a bit about how you've had to change your idea of design over time?
4: You know, I, I guess... This is something that a lot of designers that go from print to digital have to think about. Um, what was incredibly difficult for me was thinking, when I thought about digital and I thought about the web in general, It scared. Are we allowed to curse on this radio? Or do we keep it, keep it clean?
3: Fs and Cs, we can steer clear of everything else. So I think it's pretty good.
4: So I can say I, I scared a shit of the web. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, excuse my language. Um, Sorry, no, I, I, <laughs> I, I was I was petrified. That, you know that you didn't have boundaries. The web could be anything, and you know I think designers in general like boundaries because it, when you're limited to something, you know your your edges, and you can absolutely make what's inside of that the best possible thing. I mean, so that really scared me. But once you step back from the actual element of design and you start thinking about storytelling and the way that you could take a story and, and maybe tell it way better uh, on online or on mobile or through social or through video. Um, when you keep that the focus, all of a sudden, this becomes a tool that works in your advantage rather than being something that scares you. It's
3: a great idea to look at the storytelling aspect of it because design and storytelling don't seem like things that really you know sit in the same basket. But I remember in your talk at Semi-Permanent, you were, you were saying that experience is... Is the key. It's not that design is actually about the visual, it's about the experience. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit about what you mean by that?
4: Well, you know, it's. Um, it, I, I guess I'll use it with this example. You know, we did a music issue uh, this past uh, March and we shot Questlove on it. And the idea for the cover was that what is it like to feel that moment of the best new song you haven't heard? So, you know, let's, let's say, Ash, I've got the song on my phone right now that you haven't heard, but I know you and I know you're going to love it so much. And I play it and capturing that moment of euphoria because it's true euphoria. When you hear something you've never heard before that, that is you, it, it's, it's like out of this world. It's an experience. Um, you know, that's the best part of making art or telling stories. story is trying to get that, is to try to get that thing that hits you in the gut that you can just feel. I guess it's sort of like the soul of it. Um, and that's the point. That's why we design. That's why we make music. That's why we tell stories. That's why we make magazines. You know, it's to feel something and to, to have that moment of like, holy shit, yes. Right? So that's the point, I think. And that's what I was trying to um, bring to the forefront in yesterday's talk.
3: So you're talking about that moment, but I kind of feel like ever since I've been on the internet, my my moments with music have been few and far between like there's ones that where you really feel that visceral connection to a song.
4: Yeah.
3: How do you design around the fact that the internet is such a such a portal to a million things at once?
4: You know, that's a hard thing. I mean, I find myself getting more ADD, you know, every year. You know, I wake up every morning now and instead of just getting up and starting my day, I, I spend an hour in bed refreshing my Instagram feed. It's, you know, you have this thing I I, I need to bring in more content, 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 content. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a challenge. But I guess it's about – that's where it gets out of the medium and goes back to, you know, telling something or creating something pure. If if something is substantial or beautiful or tells a good story, it's going to kind of cut through the bullshit. And that's the point is that, you know, you go to the beginning of something, you go to, uh, to the brief. You go to the idea why you covered something is almost more important than any kind of execution you're going to do for it, right? You know, like – the layer of paint isn't as important as the house.
3: And uh, we've got a track to go to now, kind of in a similar vein to the Beach Boys, because I mean, what harmonies these guys can do. Mm -hmm. Zombies.
2: Well, no one told me about her The way she lied Well, no one told me about But it's too late to say you're sorry. How would I know? Why should I
1: care? Please don't bother trying to find her. She's not there.
2: Do. Well, no one told me about, though well, they all knew, but it's too late to say you're sorry. I would, I know, why should I care?
1: Please don't bother trying to find her. She's not there.
3: on fbi 94.5 the zombies with she's not there brought in by my guest today billy sorrentino and can you tell us why you bought that track in
4: Oh man, that is. Uh, I don't think the zombies get enough credit, man. In the '60s, you know, everybody's talking about the Beatles or the Beach Boys or the Stones. Maybe the Who and the Kink or the Who and uh, the Kinks at that kind of secondary level, or he got into like the cheese of like Herman's Hermits and those guys. But the Zombies, man, they were the ones that were doing that first kind of soul and kind of you know, major to minor harmony thing that no one was hitting on yet that so many people hit on later. Mm. Um, It's gorgeous and holds the test of time. And Argent and and Colin Bluntstone are just, like, my gods. They're incredible.
3: And uh, so before that track from the Zombies, we were talking about your design career and...
4: We can keep bit. talking about the zombies instead, right? We can, it's a we, more can, we can talk about the zombies <laughs> for the rest of the day.
3: So on FBI ninety four point five, you've got maybe forty minutes left of uh, talk about the zombies yeah. on yes. your Thursday. Mm-hmm. And I actually, wanted to talk to you about the the redesign that you went through with Wired as the creative director, mm-hmm. and how you managed to sort of demasculinify the the magazine and the website and the entire look of Wired as as an entity. Mm-hmm. Why did you do that?
4: Well, I, I certainly can't take credit for it because, it, you know, our, it's our full team. You know, as we go through a redesign, um, it's top to bottom, um, from Scott Daddits, editor-in-chief, to uh, our photo team, which is led by uh, Anna Alexander on the, the website, I'm sorry, on the print side, and Paloma Shoots, and then our, our brand director of photography now, Patrick Whitty, And then on the magazine side uh, of the design team, uh, two of our senior... Uh, design leads are, are both uh, incredible incredible uh women on the team Claudia Delmeida, who was the previous design director and then Margaret Swart and um so you know wired stereotypically um like most magazines that were a little bit more uh tech minded had very kind of uh, bold type faces and i think people's clichés are, we'd have these kind of geometric and for lack of a better word um you know, Loki? Two, maybe. Uh, 2001, a space odyssey or matrixy style vibe going on. Uh, Full that, angry
3: numbers every yeah, single but, page.
4: And there's nothing bad about that. That's, it's, it's some gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. But we wanted to make sure that we were a lot more um, sensible in our approach and a lot more classic and a lot more Swiss. Um, so it didn't feel so masculine um, that it spoke to obviously both genders. But more importantly, that it was more classical so that we could. Uh, leave some space in our framework to let the content really like shine. You know, let our 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 beautiful photography and illustrations come to the forefront. Let that be the focus, you know, rather than the uh, typographic styling sort of, you know, grabbing too much attention. But while still having the finesse that kind of the history of of Wired's type sensibilities would have.
3: And before you were doing stuff with Wired, you had a, you were with a bunch of different zines, mm-hmm. but the. The thing is, you were doing a lot of manly <laughs> stuff. I mean, you were yes. the wrestling zine, for God's
4: sake. I, I know, I know. It was uh, I was I was worried for a while that I was going to get pigeonholed as the, uh, for lack of a better word, dude designer, uh, you know, the, the go-to guy for the eighteen to twenty-four male set. Um, you know, I would worked at Maxim magazine and then uh, WWE, which uh, World Wrestling Entertainment. So, uh, yeah, there was a lot of very. Chunky, bold, all caps with exclamation point types of styles going on there. That so
3: extra little shines put on <laughs> muscles.
4: Yeah, there was a there was some Photoshop going on, there, you know, uh, and I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of significance and and rationale and reasons and and some weight to doing that type of work. Um, but it's it's nice to kind of get out of that and expand my horizons. Actually, show kind of the the full range of of my design interests, which is certainly. Uh, very, very, very in tune with Wired rather than some of the previous jobs I've had.
3: So you didn't identify with the the macho ness of your previous design.
4: Uh, you know, it, it's not that you don't identify with it. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that I'm a super macho dude, though. So uh, I could appreciate it, but you know, I'm not. Um, I'm not kind of the frat guy at the the Giants game on the weekend. <laughs> All
3: right, we got a track to take now from Norman. What's his name?
4: Oh, Norman Greenbaum. Uh, you know, this is a one hit wonder from the '70s that is like the ultimate get on your motorcycle and ride vibe. It's got a spirit in the sky. This is a uh, "Search and Destroy" by Iggy and the Stooges.
3: FBI 94.5. My name's Ash Bertabez. My guest today on Out of the Box is Billy Sorrentino, the creative director of Wired Magazine. But before he was working with this uh, notable publication, he was working with another notable group of people, WWE World Wrestling Entertainment.
4: Yes, yes.
3: And that's a bit of a foreign world to me. By a bit, I mean a lot of a foreign world to me.
4: (laughs) (laughs) It was to me too. Don't get me wrong. What
3: kind of stuff are you doing when you're the creative director?
4: Oh, I I wasn't the creative director, but but I was uh, I was a senior art director there. Um, uh, The creative director was this brilliant guy, Dave Hilton, who's still there. Um, He's incredible.
3: So what do you
4: what do you do as a an art director? Yeah, I would. um, So we we kind of covered pretty much everything that you could think of with with what wwe would uh... would represent it is world wrestling entertainment so this is you know the the traveling circus of wrestlers that go from town to town to town all over the world and and beat the crap out of each other in front of all sorts of ten-year-old fans and have pyro, pyromaniacs and it's, it's nuts it's crazy it's a traveling circus so um... one of the main things that we concentrated on was a lot of their publishing in um, the wwe magazine and uh... One of the things that I would have to do is go on the road with this traveling caravan, the circus. So it's you know a handful of of eighteen wheelers and a series of cars, you know, going from town to town. And essentially, you've got 150 guys jump out of the cars, in the trucks, and they put together this arena show. And while this is going on, I'm in the back of the arena, uh, setting up anywhere from 10 to 20 photo shoots with the wrestlers, and we've got prop stylists and. You know, photographers and everything, and and we would just shoot these wrestlers for all sorts of things uh, for the publication, uh, which is absolutely surreal. It was totally weird and completely out of my element, but but fascinating. And uh, I gotta say, you know, for something that I knew nothing about, it it blew my mind what a well-oiled machine it was. It was so incredibly put together to be able to pull something like that off. I mean, it'd be like if the Rolling Stones toured. For, you know, just year-round, and they never stopped. Is that huge of, a, of an event?
3: Except they all get punched on a yes. daily yeah, basis. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, well,
4: I mean, that's probably how Keith Richards feels, right? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Different kind of punch. Yeah. Uh,
3: but would you have been one of those 10-year-olds that are going to these events? No,
4: no, no, no. I, you know, it's funny. Uh, at Semi-Permanent, the first night Tony Hawk spoke, so that was more my vibe. Like, you know, I, I was, I was a, a, a very bad skateboarder um, type of kid. I, I wasn't a bad kid. I was a bad skateboarder, type of kid. Um, but you know, I obsessed over that guy. Like Tony Hawk was my was my shit. Him and Steve Caballero and Lance Mountain and you know the old Bones Brigade guys. Did
3: you get to
4: fanboy out? I totally fanboyed on Friday. I mean, it was amazing. I, I the one thing I regret. Um, and the kind of cool thing about being a speaker at semi is is you know you get the special wristband and you get to sit in the cool spots and you get to be in the green room the whole time. And I was still too much of a pussy to go up to Tony Hawk and shake his hand or take a photo. Uh, you know, the, the kind of cool thing about working in magazines, I've, I've had um, a lot of of really cool experiences to be able to, like, meet, I guess, famous people or whatever. And I've, ne- I've never had any problems with that or been nervous about that. But then it's Tony Hawk and I'm like completely nervous and I'm like I can't talk to Tony it's it's Tony Hawk (laughs) you know it's kind of funny yeah
3: could you tell me about some of the the favorite experiences you've had with I guess heroes of yours which you totally have access to Uh,
4: yeah I don't I mean this is going to sound so cliche you guys are going to call bullshit on me um, for sure I I guess for me the the shift has gone from the kind of people that we've shot in any of the, the magazines or brands that I've worked with to the actual people who are doing the shooting. Mm -hmm. I've been so much more kind of starstruck with the the photographers and the artists I've been able to work with because seeing the work they produce under pressure with so many different talents and so many different scenarios is just mind blowing to me. Like I was on a shoot on just this past Tuesday with this incredible, famous, unbelievable photographer from Austin, uh, Dan Winters. just knowing the people that he's shot before and the way that he approaches shoots, to me that's where I get a little bit more, um, you know, kind of in awe than the actual talent that we're shooting.
3: What's the favorite part of your job in that case? Is it something to do with the photography?
4: I, I love that part. You know, my favorite part is um, is the team. Uh, we, we've got an awesome team at Wired. I've been really lucky, actually. At every, every brand I've worked for has had pretty incredible design teams, and I'm a huge believer of... Um, it being about the entire team. Like when we win an award, it's not the creative director's name on that award. It's not the point. It's, it's the team because the team all worked on it. In some capacity, every single person in my team did as much work as the other person. Even if they didn't touch that thing, they're part of that group. They're living it. They're breathing it. It's, it is fully, you know, the entire photo, design, and video team's award. You know, it's the whole group.
3: That's really nice.
4: Well, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I've i been on the bottom where, you know, I've been at other brands that when we've won things, I felt like, well, I worked so hard. Why isn't my name on that or this? And, you know, it, it's about the group. It's the group effort, man. It's, it's not about you. You're the least significant part of it. It's everybody. Will you hire me? Sure. Why not? Let's do this.
3: <laughs> All right. Moving to the States. See you later, guys. So this is the last out of the box ever. Moving to the States where this next artist is from... Wanda Jackson, why'd you bring this track in today?
4: Uh, Wanda Jackson. I mean, she is the queen of rockabilly and of country, and you know, uh, her and Loretta Lynn and Dolly are like the three best in the world, and Emmylou, obviously. But anyway, she uh, when she did this record with Jack White, uh, she covered a newer Bob Dylan song, and I thought she just absolutely crushed it. So this is a uh, Thunder on the Mountain.
3: Chances are that's never happened on FBI before. Some country music, brought in by my guest today, Billy Sorrentino, the creative director of Wired Magazine, and
4: FBI needs way more Willie Nelson in their lives.
3: Absolutely, and you know we can we can try to do a little bit more for the station every week. Just <laughs> just keep reminding us that's where it's at. And uh, you, it's true to the song, have been on the road with a band. Yeah. You know, you weren't just a a magazine guy your whole life. Can you tell us a bit about your uh, your other bands?
4: Uh, So, uh, I mean, I I grew up playing music. That was that was my passion with art. You know, I was doing both. And um, yeah, so I've 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 been fortunate enough to tour a couple times with my previous band, and then I'm currently in a band called Brothers NYC, and uh, we've toured. uh, We did a tour last summer, and we're going to do a West Coast of America tour. Uh, This upcoming fall, when our new record comes out, but I think what you're getting at is that one story I was telling you about earlier Mm -hmm. today. Hmm?
3: Absolutely, I feel like this is something that has to be heard to be believed.
4: Okay, so because I don't believe you. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's far fetched. This is this is top notch. This is a scary, weird story. This is like this is my like at the pub story. this is pretty funny. So I was uh, I was a younger kid. Uh, I was in this band, and we were on the road. We were touring all summer, and we had just played Athens, Georgia. So I don't know if, if anybody listening has seen that American movie from the '70s called Deliverance, with Burt Reynolds. But the idea was it, They're in backwoods uh, Georgia, and um, there are like kind of crazy rednecks, kind of you know rural people who are scary. Um, so Georgia has that stereotype, um, and everyone in America knows that. So that just have that in mind as I tell this story. So we get finished playing this club. We finish the gig up at about midnight. Uh, we all get into the tour van, uh, which is just this like, crappy 16-passenger old Chrysler. And um, and our drummer wound up driving, and our drummer never drove. It was always our bass player that was always driving. So the drummer said, like, hey, you know what, I'm going to take the road. Now this is... This is going to date me but this is pre uh google maps and our phones directing us and gps what
3: do you mean pre google maps can
4: you believe that <laughs> um 74 years old uh no we had we had an atlas and we took the atlas out and and our drummer mike I uh, was like, you know what, this is going to be the quickest way to get to the next town, which was uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. So the way you would normally do it is you would go to Interstate 95, which I don't know how far that was from Athens, but you'd go to the main highway and you'd just drive a couple of hours. Instead, he decided to take, like, back roads because it seemingly would take out an hour of our trip. Um, so we, we head out on the back roads and we're on this, you know, very small two-lane backwoods type of road. That is getting creepier and creepier. It's like woods on both sides, and we're seeing just these kind of scary shacks the whole way. And uh, you start seeing Confederate flags, and um, you know, usually when you see Confederate flags, it's it's, it's you're kind of getting into racist territory potentially. Uh, and we're riding, riding, riding. And I, I should mention that our guitar player uh, Emerson was from El Salvador, so uh, he's very conscious now that we are in kind of like white potentially hick area of georgia so I mean we're all like what you know this is getting kind of creepy all right and then mike announces to the van oh yeah by the way guys we're out of gas and we're like oh holy shit all right man well we knew at this point we couldn't turn around because we've been driving for about an hour and we're driving some more and, and the van starts going slower and you could tell that we're getting very low on fumes um and it's just getting creepier and creepier. I mean, there, there have been no streetlights forever. Um, you know, the houses are creepier. We're seeing, like, kind of burnout pickup trucks, and it's, it's freaky. So we get to this clearing in the woods, and we see about 150 yards into the clearing about 50 pickup trucks and a giant, about 20-foot-tall bonfire and guys in white cloaks, uh, clearly the KKK, and we lost our shit. We're freaking out. Uh, We're screaming. Thank God no one. They didn't see the van at all. But the van is going kind of slower and slower and slower. And at this point, we're convinced. We're convinced we're going to break down on the side of the road.
3: I had no idea the KKK was still a thing.
4: Uh, I I mean, we know they were a thing, but I didn't realize they were still doing, you know, cross fires in the middle of the backwoods of Georgia still. Um, but I guess we were wrong. So, (laughs) we started freaking out. And then we actually realized, you know, like, we we were playing in in this kind of rock and roll band that... uh, We were idiots. You know, we were kids. So, we were putting kind of offensive stickers on the back of the van. And, you know, we were like, oh, shit, we've got to try to... If we break down, we've got to clean up the van... And then we've got to try to like potentially hide our guitar player so that they don't see him. But then we're just as guilty because we look like a bunch of (laughs) ruffians, and we're freaking out. One guy's in the back of the van crying, um, and we find there's this kind of this slight incline, this slight hill. Uh, The van is on fumes now. It's barely we're barely creeping by. We get to the top of the hill. And at the bottom of the hill, was one of those, like, super Exxon gas stations, like, for truckers. It was, like, a godsend. So, you know, we kicked the van into neutral, coast down the hill. And I think we had the the most amount of celebration beers you could possibly have uh, without getting back into your car. So it was, 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 yeah, it was pretty incredible. It was pretty fun. Uh, Scary as shit.
3: So no one got hurt.
4: No one got hurt. (laughs) No one got hurt. Um, Yeah, I, I don't think the KKK saw us. But to this day, this is the story that any of the guys in the band will tell. It's just like, you know, all of us can go immediately back to that moment. I mean, that was 10 years ago now. We can immediately go back to that moment.
3: (laughs) This one's crying in the back of the car. I'm pretty sure.
4: Oh, yeah. He won't admit that anymore. But, yeah, that happened.
3: (laughs) All right. That's amazing. Um, You're listening to FBI 94.5. This is Out of the Box. My guest today telling that story just there about their run-in with the KKK, Billy Sorrentino, the creative director of Wired Magazine. And we've got another track brought in by yours truly today. And which one should we go with, the True Lovers track or the Brothers track?
4: Let's let's do True Lovers and then we'll play Brothers. The True Lovers, um, maybe you guys have heard this before because I know this has debuted here in Australia, but um, my good buddy uh, Dion Lunadon used to play in a, a New Zealand band called the D4. And then he moved to America and he started this band, uh, The True Lovers, that was kind of short-lived. Now he's in this band called A Place to Bury Strangers that I think play here quite often. Um, But yeah, this is his band, True Lovers, and I think this is like just absolutely one of the most killer records that ever came out that no one's ever heard. So this song is called Lady of the Manor.
3: FBI 94.5 out of New Zealand, true lovers brought in by my guest today, Billy Sorrentino, the creative director of Wired Magazine. And I mean, he gets to do exactly what he wants. You're just, you're just oh, no, living so the likely. dream.
4: I'm so lucky.
3: And how do you make it work, though? Because I mean, you wanted to be across music, you want to be across design, you're uh-huh. basically, you know, on overdrive all the time with creativity. Do you get burnt out?
4: Uh, it, not so much, but I think it's because I, I've I really try to keep the two things I love in in check and balance with each other. Um when I first moved to New York, I moved up uh with a a fellow art director buddy of mine, this this guy Emerson Burias, who is now the creative director at The Atlantic. And we moved up at the same time we were we were kids. We didn't know anything about magazines and, and we both kind of got magazine jobs really early, really lucky. Um and I was at this magazine called Cunning Nast Traveler and he was at this magazine called The New Yorker. And his art director, The New Yorker, told him, Hey, listen, man, if you want to be a really great art director, you gotta quit you gotta quit your music. You have to stop because you've got to obsess over design. You've got to live it, you gotta breathe it, you gotta sleep it. And, you know, that was really good advice. And Emerson took it and he skyrocketed. I mean, he, he's an absolute incredible talent. He's so good. Um and it was hard for me, though, because, you know, I was like, hey, man, we we need our band up here. We need to play music. Um, so for a while, you know, I, I kind of stopped designing, and I did music. And it's funny that music then took off a little bit, and it actually made more sense, and I got way better at it. Um, but I missed design. And so then I, I quit music. I quit my band altogether. And then my design career took off. Like, I got better at design, and, and that guy's... You know, his his comments, his advice actually made sense. But at the same time, you're missing a huge part of yourself, right? So,
3: so, so would you advise it, though?
4: No, I wouldn't. Because for me, it was finding the balance, kind of finding that right balance made me so much happier and actually better at both. And I think that was the key. And that's my big advice, I think, to anybody is, like, have a night job and love your night job as much as your day job. Because creatively, they keep each other in check. It means when you're spending your time at your day job, you know that time matters so much because you've got to go to your night job. There, there's a cutoff point that you've got to do your next thing, right? So then for me, it's like then when I'm playing music, my time in music is so important because it has to end at some point because I've got to go back to my day job of design. Uh, and it, it, For me personally, it, it makes me better at both, I think. You know, it, it makes me happier with both. makes me more excited about both. It inspires me with both. Uh, and you know, there, there are plenty of people in the world that I think that helps with. You know? So I would advise that to everybody in the world.
3: Speaking about keeping your music going, you're in a band called Brothers, which I only figured out today. <laughs> and it's interesting because there's an album by the Black Keys called Brothers, and you look exactly like Dan Auerbach. Is that how I say his last name? I, I think so. Yeah, so you you look very similar to him. He's,
4: he's much better looking than me.
3: Pish posh. But how, how do you guys kind of come across your sound in Brothers?
4: Um, you know... You, since you loved Willie Nelson so much, it's a, probably a pretty good segue into this. Uh, uh, you know, we I I grew up, uh, my drummer grew up, and my my pedal steel player that says a lot right there. All grew up in Virginia, so you know we know country music from that. Um, our our guitar player and our bass player grew up in Oklahoma in a a town of 450 people called Lone Wolf. So they knew country music. But we were rock and roll guys. We grew up on punk rock and we grew up on rock and roll, though our, our background had country in it. So we found a way to kind of tie our history with our passion and kind of make a, a kind of country-feeling rock and roll band uh, that's just, it's just pure, man. It's what we love. It's, it comes really easily. And uh, it's called Brothers. It's, 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 it's my favorite thing in the world.
3: All right, fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us on Out of the Box today. Oh, thank, Billy, sorry. Oh, thank
4: today, Billy. you. Oh, it was incredible.
3: And uh, so this track from Brothers, what do they call it?
4: It's called Let like, the Black Horse Ride.
3: And is it, is it available, just so we know?
4: So you can get it on iTunes, but the actual record is going to come out this fall. It's called Brothers, Volume 2.
2: Meet people through their music. With Ash Bertabez on FBI.